You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 5th of October 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. The Norwegian Nobel Committee has decided to award the Nobel Peace Prize for 2018 to Dennis Mukwege and Nadia Murad for their efforts to end the use of sexual violence as a weapon of war and armed conflict. Little doubt as to the merits of 2018's Nobel Peace Laureates, but can the same still be said about the Nobel Peace Prize itself? My guests Marcus Hippie, Carlotta Rabello and Augustin Machelari will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including Japan's row with South Korea over a flag, France's ongoing row with the English language, and one of the worst rebranding disasters in recent history is drawn to a merciful close. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Monocle 24's Carlotta Ribello, Augustin Machelari, and Marcos Hippie. Welcome all. And we start with today's announcement of the winners of the 2018 Nobel Prize for Peace. They are Nadia Murad and Dennis Mukwege. They are very different people from very different places. Murad is an Iraqi Yazidi activist, Mukwege a Congolese gynaecologist, but the pair have been garlanded for their work in the same cause, campaigning on behalf of the victims of sexual violence in warfare. Ms. Murad was herself a prisoner of Islamic State. Dr. Mukwege and his colleagues have treated tens of thousands of victims of rape. Um, so I don't think there's I don't think we need to spend much time talking about whether uh, these two people merit the Nobel Peace Prize or not. Um, but the Nobel Peace Prize itself, um, Marcus, I'll ask you ask you first, does it still seem like that big a deal? It's interesting. Uh, in a way, it is a deal. In a way, it is a great opportunity for the Nobel Peace Prize committee, committee to draw the world's attention to an issue. But at the same time, I think the committee is, is facing a lot of criticism as well. I think there's been some some peaks in recent years that haven't gone down too well. Just think of Barack Obama getting his Nobel Peace Prize very early on to his presidency and the European Union, for example, being another controversial one. I, I don't know. I think that's a very good question. In a way, it's a very good opportunity for the Nobel Peace Prize Committee to actually raise an issue. But then again, there are many issues that we talk about already. I'm not saying that this is not an issue that would not deserve more attention. It definitely does. But at the same time, what do you choose? And uh, how do you choose it? And what does it actually mean? What is the impact? Carlotta, on this specific issue chosen this time, which is the issue of sexual violence, um, mostly, almost entirely against women in warfare, uh, this is, is not a new story. It is, in fact, as old as warfare itself. Uh, is there an argument that if attention was going to be paid to it, attention would have been by now? And does, does the Nobel Peace Prize help? Uh, I want to believe it does. Uh, as you mentioned, this is something that is not new to the wars of even this century. Every time, uh, looking back through history, that there's been any sort of conflict, this has been, unfortunately, part of it. Indeed so. Um, but I, I do tend to believe that this specific and horrid uh, thing that happens during conflict, people tend to 
not forget about it, but choose to ignore it because it is an atrocious thing when you even take five seconds to think about that and tend to not include that when you talk about the collateral in war and everything else that happens. Um, do, do, do you think that's because when, when people when people think about other violence in war, which is, I guess, might be thought of as outside of warfare, what is referred to as collateral damage, they can mm-hmm. rationalise that as at least being part of warfare. These things are going to happen, whereas this is a, a a deliberately extraneous atrocity. This is one evil human being doing something to someone that doesn't deserve. And what in war is referred as collateral, and that doesn't mean it's justified or anything, but I think people do accept it more. And when I say people, the general public mm. accepts it more that a village was bombed by mistake, but in the end it's worth it because the war was won, then, you know, the soldiers were bored and this is what they ended up doing. And that's not obviously always the case, but... unfortunately it is a narrative a lot of times and I do think that the Nobel Peace Prize is a good opportunity to highlight something regardless if it has been going on for a while or not and I think different generations view the prize differently if you were born in peace I think unless you actually actively um, interested in these issues you might not think it's a big deal but for someone that probably was brought up in war or a war-torn country um, with an impending risk of a neighboring nation invading yours, then the Nobel Peace Prize has a completely different weight than it would have for someone like me. And, and I guess if you are a, a Yazidi or a Congolese, then it, your, your trauma has at least been recognized exactly. here. Okay, can I just add that actually... Actually, I guess we are doing now here something that the Nobel Peace Prize Committee wants to see happen, which is to talk about to talk about this issue. You know how our news agenda works. It's nowadays it's Trump, 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 then something else where then it's Kavanaugh, Trump, Trump, and so forth. We haven't been talking about sexual violence in wars that much in many news media outlets, and now we are actually talking about at least talking about what is happening and how, what the Nobel Peace Prize Committee is doing with it. I mean, I think what's also important to recognise is that in this instance, the sexual violence it's referring to is not sort of. Uh, soldiers who are filled with passion, which is obviously the wrong way to describe it, but who are going after women as kind of the spoils of war. It's about systematized sexual violence as a weapon, as a way in the Congo of destroying communities and as a part of the Islamic State's kind of so-called jihad. I also think that it's worth noting that you know, maybe the Nobel Prize for Peace falls down when it is used politically, when it's awarded to Barack Obama and he doesn't deserve it, or it's given to Aung San Suu Kyi, who subsequently kind of invalidates her nomination. Nobody really would have guessed at the time, in fairness. She, she was regarded sure. as money in the bank at that point. Sure, but when people talk about it, maybe this is something that flickers through their mind. In fact, you know, on, on the one hand, you're really raising the profile of the issue, which is great, but I think what's as important, if not more important, is just recognising these two individuals who are working in this field, which is, you know, largely thankless from an internet, a kind of global perspective. They make a difference to lots of people's lives there. But now they're getting spotlighted, you know, they're getting access to the global media. And on a personal level, they must finally be experiencing some level of kind of individual recognition for the work that they're doing, which is only positive. Exactly. And also, you know, what both you and Andrew mentioned earlier about, you know, specifically here, like she's from the Azidi community, which 
probably a couple of years ago, most of the world didn't even know what being a member, what being an Yazidi meant. And now we got to a point that won what is considered one of the most achievable and attained prizes to receive for your humanitarian work is recognizing someone that is not only young, has been experienced this herself, and that's why she became a champion for uh, the cause, um, and represents a community that probably was brought up in accepting the fact that the world had learned to ignore them. And it's a fantastic thing. Okay, well, let's move along now. Japan's relationship with its reasonably recent history has been having one of its rocky patches this week. The city of Osaka withdrew from a decades-old sister city arrangement with San Francisco over a statue commemorating women pressed into sexual slavery by the Japanese army before and during World War II. And now Japan's navy has decided it will not send its ships to an international fleet review in South Korea next week after Seoul asked all participating ships not to fly flags off the stern or the bow, which meant, possibly not coincidentally, that the Japanese Navy could not hoist the rising sun standard associated by many Koreans with Imperial Japan. Um, this is kind of a weird one, I think. Uh, Augustine, I'll ask you first, uh, is, is somebody being unreasonable here? I guess the question is, should Japan be perfectly entitled to fly its flag if it feels like it, and or is South Korea within its rights to say to people we'd rather not see that particular flag? Thanks very much. I mean, the whole thing does seem a little passive-aggressive insofar <laughs> as uh, South Korea hasn't been able to explicitly say to Japan, don't do it, and they're kind of doing it in this way that you know, maybe has some deniability attached, but yeah. Well, that- except that they rather tipped their hand when the <laughs> South Korean foreign ministry said the Japanese side should fully consider the rising sun flag's emotional connotation to our people, again, with the passive aggressiveness. Yeah, I, I, it's difficult, isn't it? But I, I mean, I kind of, on some level, think they're both right. At, at the moment, Japan is going through a kind of phase of resurgent nationalism, as are many countries around the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, enough time has elapsed since you know, its last serious effort at war crimes to maybe have removed it from the public consciousness for people to feel a little bit less ashamed about it and for people to feel like maybe now is the time that they can be proud in their country again. At the same time, this was a war flag that was uh, flown during the kind of worst excesses of Japanese imperial policy. I wondered if maybe the fact that Japan is kind of ethnically fairly homogenous in a way that, for example, the UK isn't, has meant that it hasn't had to interrogate its own kind of colonial or imperial past in quite the same way. Obviously, I think that's I think that's exactly right. And that's why I guess you can't probably doesn't occur to them that you, you can. I'm, I'm trying to compare and contrast the uh, the row over the, the Confederate flag in the United States, the stars and bars, which people who insist on their right to flight will now say that the meaning of the flag has changed in a hundred and odd years. It doesn't stand for the Confederacy anymore. It stands for a, a, a different idea of Southern identity. Um, Carlotta, does that idea hold up where the rising sun flag is concerned? I don't know. I think it's a tricky one because when you look at different branches of navy around the world and uh, even sometimes the, the, the army, the flags do tend to reflect a period where those branches were actively engaged in war. And, you know, I don't see many countries questioning whether or not the flags deserve an update. They're much more worried about whether their equipment deserves one. <laughs> and it's a, it's a different conversation that needs to happen. And I think in this case, 
no one is being un- unreasonable. And I think, you know, if Japan doesn't want to participate because of the request, then, you know, that's their call. Uh, but it should draw a bigger discussion back home about how a symbol might be perceived overseas. And if the idea is that you don't want to be threatening, but embracing of other nations and see and be seen as the friendly neighbor, then maybe do change that. Actually, that's exactly what we heard from Monocle Seisha, editor at large, Kenji Hall, on today's edition of the briefing some hours ago. He said that this is actually not discussed in Japan. People rarely talk about what that flag may mean. But I think it's interesting how people may not understand the meaning of different symbols or the perception internationally of, of some symbols Actually, in Finland, where I come from, the Finnish Air Force was using swastikas for a very long time. They only stopped using them some decades ago. And if you go to museums, you see anything Air Force related, you see swastikas everywhere. And I was just some months ago in Finland with my with my colleagues and they were shocked to see those. And I was like... Why are you so upset? We just use them differently. But actually, that's that's yeah, exactly but, the example. But, but, but and s- seriously, though, the, 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 I the, know. Sw- the swastika kind of has sh- surely has been exactly. off, off the menu and, for some and, time now. And Finland has learned the lesson at least once. There's there's actually quite an interesting anecdote from 1962. Finnish Finnish president was trying to give the Grand Cross of the White Rose of Finland to the <laughs> French president Charles de Gaulle, which happened to come with a swastika chain. And that situation was so embarrassing that there are some pictures of Charles de Gaulle trying to hide that chain under his jacket in this official event. And after that, Finland had to had, had to have a rethink about what the chain is going there to be looking a, like a, in the, the future. There was a US Navy facility off San Diego which did actually have to undertake something of a cosmetic rebuild a few years ago because nobody had noticed it was a problem. It was built in the 1960s and then from Google Earth. Uh, it just looked like a massive swastika uh, oh, appended to the west coast of the United States. I think if memory serves, they built some walkways between the different <laughs> wings of the building. So now it just looks like a, a sort of a, a square, as it were. I remember that. This is a bit sorry. This thing is like in a in a an argument online where the comments you always by the end and always get down and calling each other Nazis, and we've ended up talking about swastikas. I was just going to add that I think it's important, you know that that a large part of this sort of whole debate comes down to how one engages with nationalism and with pride in one's own country. The St George's Cross, if I'm completely honest, sometimes makes me feel a little bit funny. You know, if you see it hanging, it can have, like, you see it... This is the the national flag of England, I should should specify. I I should add. Um, And it's because it does evoke, you know, kind of racially motivated violence, football, hooliganism, and, and it has experienced something of a rebrand in recent years and that's maybe no longer the case but if you're if you're sort of proud and you're uh, in your country if you have pride in your country then it kind of follows that you're going to have pride in the flag but maybe having too an excess of pride in a country is a little bit sort of untoward anyway. Marcus, as, as I think the, I, I think I'm writing saying the, the, the token military veteran at this table, do, 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 do things like this become different when you're trying to deal with the military, who do tend to have a, a much more emotional attachment to national symbols than most people, for obvious enough reasons? I mean, it, it would be one thing, for mm-hmm. example, a Japanese bureaucrat or politician to decide that, well, in the interests of good relations, maybe we shouldn't fly our flag on this visit. But that's a tough sell to the sailors. Exactly. It is. It is. Um 
and 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 as we discussed, the whole issue about this flag may be more more acute for for Koreans than for the Japanese. And the Japanese officials have been saying that it's the law that says that the ships need to be having these flags and so forth. Well, having been in Finland, having grown up over there, seeing those swastikas in museums a few times, I know what they stand for, and they were around decades before the Second World War, decades before Nazis. They used to represent the Finnish independence and and all that, all those freedoms. And and I know that when it comes to people who are in the military, the type of the people even <laughs> tend to be quite patriotic and quite traditional. So they they may not always be up for change. It is that thing uh, you mentioned there about how, you know, when decades later or even more centuries later, when uh, someone uses a symbol, a national symbol that is in existence and taints it for future generations. And that's exactly what you were just describing. I was just thinking now uh, about uh, my hometown, in my hometown uh, in Madeira Island. Uh, a couple of years ago, they decided this like tourist tour thing, decided to bring back um, a replica of one of the like caravels, the vessels that Portugal used to uh, take on to discover and explore the seas and do all the horrific things that came with it. Um, and I remember this <laughs> op-ed that came in the local newspaper and it was about these uh, tourists, if I'm not mistaken, from Angola um, that were shocked to, you know, that was one of the things that everyone suggested that to go and do the tour by boat because obviously the sails are flagging what would be Portugal's flag at that time, which colonized a lot of nations across mm. the world and all the atrocities that came with it. And uh, it is that question of just looking at how your symbols are seen and perceived uh, by different nations. Okay, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Augustin Machilari, Marcus Hippie and Carlotta Ribello. Coming up next, France claims that fake news is itself, after a fashion, fake news. On Wednesday, October the 31st, join me, Andrew Tuck, and the Urbanist team, plus a panel of special guests for an evening of discussion and a drink or two at Midori House in London to celebrate the launch of the Monocle Guide to Building Better Cities. In our latest book, published with Gestalten, Monocle's editors unpack what makes a great city. Whether you're looking for a new place to call home or need help fixing up your own metropolis, why not come along? You'll receive a copy of the book and the chance to hear sparkling insights from some leading lights in urbanism. Find out more about the book and about this month's fantastic Urbanist Live event on the 31st of October and buy tickets at monocle.com right now. Monocle, keeping an eye and an ear on the world. You're back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Marcus Hippie, Carlotta Ribello and Augustin Machilari. And let's look now at France, the efforts of which to protect its language from sullying by foreign phrases have been mocked and or derided for some decades by programmes such as this. In keeping with that tradition, we turn our attention to the latest harumphing of the Commission for the Enrichment of the French Language, which is a real thing, this time at the phrase fake news, recently beloved of assorted populist charlatans. 
Brussels. SELF or KELF, it's a horrible acronym, has suggested that instead French people say information fallacieuse <laughs> or perhaps infox, which is a portmanteau of information and intoxication. Um, I, I quite like information fallacieuse. Uh, it, it sounds like a, a, a failed new romantic band circa 1985. Um, Augustine, first of all, is it, is it weird that KELF or SELF or whatever they prefer to be called are called the Commission for the Enrichment of the French Language when they're actually kind of all about enforcing the opposite? Yeah, that is weird. And what's even weirder is that France seems to have at least two bodies dictating what can and can't be <laughs> entered into the language. They do indeed. I, I, I hope they get into massive arcane arguments. Yeah. I, re I really do. Can you imagine the pedants that must work <laughs> the level well, of pedantry? But this is the, speaking myself as someone who fancies himself as quite the humorless pedant, these people are operating at a level that I, I can only dream of. Transcendental. That's uh, exactly the word. Yeah. I, 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 it, or whatever the French equivalent of that is. It is strange. I was just laughing as you did your cue for that because obviously England has no such problem with uh, the adoption of foreign words into the language which is why we're able to refer to infox as a portmanteau indeed so um i'm glad you spotted that i, yeah. I, I was hoping listeners would <laughs> uh, but on that point though carlotta isn't this weird that france does this that it is so resistant to its its language evolving and co-opting because as augustine correctly points out one of the great strengths of english one of the reasons that it has become ironically enough the global lingua franca if you will uh, is that it, it has been so adept uh, at at sort of picking and choosing and adopting and appropriating phrases from other languages i think what france is a deeper uh, with french is a, deep, a deeper question here um Obviously, I think there's still a lot of uh, romantics around. I'd like to look back to French, French as the business language of Europe, which used to be at a certain point up until maybe the 80s. And that's then when English just took over. And committees like this try to protect the language in the sense that there's this weird uh, fear that if they allowed these foreign words to come into you know everyday language, that people will one day just eventually stop talking French, speaking French altogether. And you see that a lot when you try to you know even in Portugal uh, up until the 90s, French was the business language, like foreign language, mm -hmm. like all the important books that couldn't be translated into Portuguese and were not in French or English would be translated into French and that's what would be the main language you would learn at school because it was considered the way you'd speak in Europe, in the continent, if you were going to do meetings and business and that is dramatically different nowadays and I think the essence of this is to kind of keep it that way. Marcus, what, what, what is Finnish for fake news? Oh, that's a very good question. Uh, I think we actually use the term fake news oh, often nowadays. On. We can try to say vale or what is that, but it's not that sketchy. <laughs> I think the thing is that English language is so it's so snappy and it's so punchy that it works amazingly well. It's it's like if I if I speak my mother tongue in Finland, I find myself using more English words that I would never have done before. I can't give you obviously any examples now that I'm trying to think of them. I swear in English nowadays it's punchier. The the, the English language swear words tend to be quite snappy instead of the Finnish. Swearing ones. sounds fantastic exactly. in, in English. But it's it's interesting. It's um, um, See, swearing in Russian, it's a bit niche, and I don't really understand when exactly what people are saying when they do it. I get, not that I get sworn at by Russians a lot, though <laughs> it, it has happened, but it, it, it does sound brilliant. Finland has its own organisation as well that is trying to preserve Finnish language, and they sometimes come up with the most ridiculous suggestions for for words we should use instead of English words. But it's just always, it's just so much easier. You always want to go for the easier option. And I'm just thinking that if I was French, I would not be saying information fallacious either. 
By the way, talking about the influence of English language, I just remember that some years ago, the word shitstorm was added to the German dictionary. Excellent. Did, 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 it's a very good word. Scheißersturm. <laughs> just, 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 just shitstorm. I can't remember it's, whether it's Dardes or D, but anyway, they do I, I, have it I, as an I, official word now. I, I think the German variant you've grasped that there sounds better, actually. Although, <laughs> although really, most things sound better in German, which I think is underrated as a, a just a general listening experience. Um, but, Augustine, to follow that up, is there is this not an admission of weakness by France, suggesting that it's a concern that their own language cannot look after itself? I think it's a little bit sort of uh, histrionic. I'm not sure it's weak. Be, that would be histrionique. histrionique. Q-U-E at the end. Um, they have no faith in the people speaking the language to maintain it to a standard that will ensure that it lasts down the ages. Is that kind of what you're yeah, asking? Yeah, something of that sort. Or, or as Carlotta suggested, that, that everybody might just give up and start speaking English. Yeah, I just don't think that's going to happen. I think it's more about a kind of snobbery, which I do have a lot of time for. You know, I personally really hate Americanisms and I don't you know I don't say anything about it but I do they do make my skin slightly cruel when I hear an English person using them Americans fine and so maybe there is something in kind of wanting to keep a degree of purity but we have to accept the language is immutable just just a really quick example from Finland by the way when I think that this case is valid that the country needs to, that a language needs to be protected actually in, in Finnish university circles there's so many courses offered in English nowadays you can go through the Finnish university you can get courses you can get degrees in English and as a resource people are right books, their dissertations, all that in English. And now in Finland is actually seeing the issue that we don't have enough material being published in Finnish and they're trying to push students to do that. Well, finally tonight, uh, exciting news for whichever station holds the account for American newspaper business Tronk, which after enduring two years of richly merited ridicule for calling itself Tronk, has decided to revert to its original name of Tribune Publishing. Tronk's second largest shareholder, Patrick Sunxiong, spoke for many when he said, I always thought Tronk was a silly name. Uh, Tronk, T-R-O-N-C. Does anybody here want to make the contrarian case for Tronk? Does anybody think it's an absolutely splendid name for a publisher? It's not splendid, but at least got people talking about it, didn't it? It did get people talking about it, but it got people talking by saying... That's a silly name. That's a silly name is for it, publisher. I, I believe, is it an acronym? What is it? It, it, stands, it, was, for, it, it stands for Tribune Publishing Online was, Content. I guess they wanted like to. That, I guess yes. they wanted to emphasize the online aspect of the modern uh, phase of publishing industry. Why do people do this, though? Anybody? I mean, it's daft. I mean, you, there, there is, of course, the, the the post office fiasco of here a few years ago, where yeah. they changed the name of the post office to Consignia, Consignia and then changed it back when everybody pointed out post office is actually a pretty fair name for an organization uh, burdened with the responsibilities of delivering the post. Finland did the same thing, by the way. We used to have Finnish posti. They renamed it Itel some years ago. And everyone was like, what, what's that word? Where does it come from? It comes from Latin language. They had it for a few years and now it's called posti again. But we, we have seen this. There's your faith in the language. Sorry, there's your faith in the language enduring <laughs> that the French don't have. But we, ha- but we have seen this year the actual reductio ad absurdum of this occur, which is an entire country uh, rebranding itself. This is Swaziland, which is now known as Iswatini. That's with a with a small e and a capital S. Well, you also have uh, the Czech Republic, Czechia. No one actually uses that. No, no one does. But that's the official name of the country. And we're about to have Macedonia, although that's kind that's of a, that's a, that's a different, different. That's a different, different that's a kettle whole of fish. Other, th- we well, more, more, it's more a can of worms than a kettle of fish, but but nonetheless, the, we it, shouldn't call it rebranding. Then. No, no. no the, the, the point stands. Why do companies do this? Why do companies keep falling for this? Well, if something really bad has happened, would be my that that if I was to rebrand a company, it would be because my company had 
maybe leaked a, a substantial <laughs> amount of something noxious into the ocean and I wanted to distance myself from that. For example, I don't I don't see any re- if it's a heritage brand especially mm. there's no advantage to rebranding. Maybe it's an acknowledgement that you're just not as successful as you should be. You're like that. I'll rebrand because no one knows who I am in the first place. I absolutely think that history should be appreciated and you should not really go and change names like this. But I wonder in some cases I sometimes wonder if they just have a, a new new boss in charge who wants to do something visible or something that he will be remembered he or she will be remembered for this, in the future. But that's one of the great curses of humankind though. The person who decides I, I must I must make my mark here exactly H- however stupid or idiotic it is i must do a thing trump land <laughs> coming 2023 no, and then you have completely pointless rebrands when you had like coca-cola changed to coke only and then went back to coca-cola it's just like well we are, people already used both names anyway you didn't have to officially rebrand your entire you know identity uh, do, does anyone think it makes any difference at all, really, to the the actual paying customer? Say, for example, the purchaser of the doubtless many fine publications for which Tribune was responsible. Did did anybody anywhere think I never used to read their papers, but now they've changed the name of the publisher to Tronk? I'm subscribing to literally everything. I think it goes the other way around. I would imagine that there's been quite a few elderly Finnish people trying to find their local post that's nowadays called or used to be called Itella, and they have no idea what it means. It is, it is really strange. Publishing does seem, uh, Augustine, unusually pl- prone to this. Is, is it just because we, we have, as a, as a breed of people, as an industry, a, uh, an over amount of faith in the power of words? Perhaps that is that could be very well why. So I've just literally come up with that theory right now. It may hold <laughs> no ex- water whatsoever. You've explained it. I'd just like to observe that Tronk, when I was working in a restaurant as a waiter, was the system by which tips were divided up amongst the staff kind of stolen from you was it an abbreviation uh, no it's called trunk it's a payment system not very good i'll add look it up but uh, <laughs> that's what that makes me think of and that's why i wouldn't buy the tribune if i was ever <laughs> in uh, that place well th- th- that extraordinarily personal and specific vendetta brings us to the end of today's show marcus hippie augustin machilari and carlotta Rabello, thank you for joining us at midori house the show was produced by marcus hippie researched by fernando augusto pacheco and barbara maimone our studio manager was david stevens music next at 1900 marcus is back with the menu i'm back with more on the day's main stories on the daily at 2200 midori house returns at the same time on monday 1800 london i'm andrew muller thanks for listening